21, you get in free. A sliding scale from $7 and up benefits Marin County Hope. For the entire Bay Area speaking schedule, log on to veteransforpeace.org and click on local links or call 415-721-2844. That's 721-2844. See you on March 2nd. Now they want me back again, and you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover, Open Book. Good afternoon, and welcome to Friday's edition of Cover to Cover, Open Book. This afternoon, we bring you part one of a rebroadcast of Remembering Slavery from Smithsonian Productions and originally presented by Susan Stone. In the 1930s, the Works Progress Administration sent writers all over America to interview the last remaining black witnesses to slavery. African Americans talked firsthand about their personal experiences of slavery and emancipation. Those who lived to tell the tale talked of confronting owners, laboring in the fields, secretly maintaining families, practicing their folk traditions, and keeping their dignity in the most degrading of circumstances. Long ignored by historians, the recordings and printed interviews caught the nation's attention during the civil rights movement. Slavery was finally being seen as the primary experience of millions of Americans, not just as one of the causes of the Civil War. These precious and brutally honest narratives now move to the center of the study of slavery and awaken the country to its ugly past. Remembering Slavery is a radio documentary from Smithsonian Productions. We are about to hear part one of a two-part presentation, and our narrator is Tania Stewart. Featured readings, in addition to the original first-hand accounts which you're going to hear, are read by Debbie Allen, Clifton Davis, Louis Gossett Jr., James Earl Jones, Jetta Jones, Melba Moore, and Esther Roll. And now, remembering slavery, African Americans talk about their personal experiences of slavery and emancipation. We were slaves, so we belonged to people. See, the white folks would have church in the morning, then they'd let the colored people have church at their church in the evening. And uh, during slavery. During slave time. I can remember when the Yankees come through. Well, now, they tell me to the uh, year before the folk know they were free. Say the old marshal come as a hoopman. He quit praying and then asking the Lord, have mercy on the old marshal. Lord, have mercy on the old marshal. The old marshal always hoopman with a bullwhip. If I thought that I'd ever be a slave again, I'd take a, a gun and just end it all right away. Oh, Garlic of Montgomery, Alabama, sat on her porch and insisted that she was a hundred years old. She had no good words for slavery days. She said, them days was hell. I was growed up when the war come and I was a mother before it closed. 
Babies were snatched from their mother's breasts and sold to speculators. Oh, children were separated from sisters and brothers and never saw each other again. Cause they cry. You think they don't cry when they were sold like cattle? I could tell you about it all day, but even then, you couldn't guess the awfulness of it. It's bad to belong to folks that own your soul and body and they can tie you up to a tree with your face to the tree and your arms fastened tight round it. Who take a long curling whip and cut the blood. Ever lick. Oh, trusting. Trusting was the only hope of the poor black critters in them days. Us just prayed for strength. To endure it to the end. Delia Garlic was interviewed by an employee of the Federal Writers Project. Beginning in the late 1930s, interviewers collected the memories of thousands of former slaves. Let former slaves tell you, in their own words, of their lives in bondage and what it was like. To be a slave no more. My name is Houghton Hughes. I was born in Charlottesville, Virginia. My grandfather belonged to Thomas Jefferson. My grandfather was 115 years old when he died. And now I am 101 years old. That's no. You just go ahead and talk away there. You don't mind, do you, Uncle Fountain? Who did you work for, Uncle Fountain? Who did I work for? Yeah. Uh, you mean when I was a slave? Yeah, when you were a slave, who did you work for? Well, I belonged to um, uh, Burnley's when I was a slave. My mother belonged to Burnley's when Burnley died during the war time because uh, he was afraid he'd have to go to war. But uh, now, you, and in them days, you could hire a substitute to take your place. Well, he couldn't get a substitute to take his place, so he ran away from home. And he took hold. And when he come back, war was over, but he died. And then, uh, if he had lived, it couldn't have been no good. The Yankees just come along and just broke the mill open, rolled all the flour out in the river and broke the... Broke a stove, sold all the meat out in the street, sold all the sugar out. And we, we boys would pick it up and carry it and give it to our middle missus and master, young master, until we come to be... Well, I don't know how. I don't know to tell you the truth. When I think of it today, I don't know how I'm living. 101-year-old Fountain Hughes had lived through some of the most trying times in American history. So did Mary Barber. She was 81 years old when she was interviewed in Raleigh, North Carolina. Actress, director, choreographer, and producer Miss Debbie Allen interprets the written responses of Mary Barber. One of the first things that I remember was my pappy waking me up in the middle of the night, dressing me in the dark, all the time telling me to keep quiet, quiet. 
One of the twins hollered some, and Pat put his hand over his mouth to keep it quiet. And well, after we was dressed, he he went outside and peeked around for a minute. Then he he came back and got us, and we then sneaked out the house and along the wood path. Papa toting one of the twins and holding me by the hand, and Mama carrying the other two. I I, I reckon I will always remember that walk. With the bushes slapping my legs and the wind seemed to be just sighing in the trees and the hoot owls and the whippoorwills hollering at each other from the big trees. I was half asleep, but I sure was scared. Ooh, was scared. But in a little while we passed a, a, a plum ticket and there was the mules in the wagon. There was the, the quilt at the bottom of the wagon and on this they lays us youngins and Pappy and Mammy gets on the board across the front and drives off down that road. Oh, I sure was sleepy. I sure was scared, too. And we rides along. I, I, I listens to Pappy and Mammy talk. And Pappy's telling Mammy about the Yankees coming to their plantation, burning the cone cribs and smokehouse and just tearing up, just tearing up, just throwing everything. He says right low that they done took Master Jordan down to Norfolk and that he stole the mules and the wagon and escaped. Ooh, we were scared of them Yankees to start with. But the more we thinks about running away from our masters, the scareder we get to them rebs. <laughs> Anyhow, Pappy, Pappy say that we is going to join the Yankees. Well, we about travels all night and we... Hid in the woods all day for a long time, but after a while we gets to Dr. Dillard's place in Charwin County. I reckon we stayed there several days, a few days. The Yankees has took this place, so we stops over and has a heap of fun, a heap of fun dancing and such while we was there. Oh, it was, it was nice and. But the Yankees tell Pappy to head for New Bern, and he would be took care of there. So, to New Bern we goes, yeah, and we goes to New Bern. Mm-hmm. In July 1864, my master's regiment captured a gang of Yankee soldiers and brought them into camp to keep them until they could be transferred to Libby Prison in Richmond. We were in camp uh, up near Fredericksburg. At that time, the rebels were trying to take Washington. It was May 28, 1937, when William I. Johnson, Jr. was interviewed. At the time, he was a 97-year-old retired building contractor. Clifton Davis brings the transcript of his interview to life. I didn't know what the war was all about, nor why they were fighting. But when the rebels were out on the battlefield, a few pickets were left to guard the prisoners. And the servants got a chance to talk to the Yankee prisoner. They explained to us about slavery and freedom. They told us if we got a chance to steal away from camp 
and got over to the Yankees' side, we would be free. They said, if we win, all you colored folk will be free. But if the rebels win, you will always be slaves. These words got into our heads. We got together, five of us, and decided to take the chance one night, and we made it. Of course, the rebel pickets knew we were servants in the camp. They probably thought we were going to run an errand for our masters. We carried along plenty of chewing tobacco, because we knew the pickets would always like a chew, and they didn't ask no question. After we passed the rebel pickets and got out on the road, every time we would hear horses, we would run off the road and into the woods. After the horses would pass, we would come out and continue our travel as fast as possible. We reached Washington the next day, and Yankee pickets took us to the military headquarters. The other men enlisted in the fighting regiments, but I was lucky enough to be sent with another group of men to Boston, Massachusetts, where I was assigned to General Butler's division and to the quartermaster's corps in charge of food and rations. Down here below Richmond, at a place now called Seven Pines, Negro troops fought one of the fiercest battles of the war against the rebels. The battle lasted seven days. Many men were killed on both sides, and when the battle was over, only seven pine trees were left standing on the edge of the road where previously there had been a great pine forest. After this battle, the place became known as Seven Pines. Fremont told him when the war had first begun How to save the Union the way it should be won but old Kentucky swore so hard, and A.B. had his fears, till every hope was lost but the colored volunteer. The first cannon I heard scared me near about to death. We could hear him going, boom, boom. Well, I thought it was thunder. Then Miss Polly said, listen, Sarah, you hear them cannons? Why, they're killing our men. And she begun to cry. Sarah DeBreau was born somewhere back in the 1850s in Orange County, North Carolina. She was a young girl when the world changed. Melba Moore presents her words. Well, I run in the kitchen where Aunt Chatty was cooking and told her Miss Polly was crying. She said, hmm, they ain't crying cause the Yankees killing them men's. She, she crying all that cause, cause she scared we gonna be set free. Well, then I got mad and told her Miss Polly wasn't like that. Well, I, I remember when Wheeler's cavalry come through here. They were steroids, but they was mean as the Yankees. 
They stole everything they could find, and they killed a pile of niggas. They come around checking everything and asking the niggas if if they want to be free. And well, if they said yes, then they shot them down. What if they said no? Well, then they they let them alone. They took three of my uncles out in the woods and shot their faces off. When the war was over, well, the Yankees was all around the place, just telling the niggas just what to do. Told them they, that they was free and they didn't have a slave for the white folks no more. Well, my folks all left Moss Cane and went on up to live in houses that the Yankees built. Well, it was like poor white folks' houses. Little shacks made out of sticks and, and mud. Sticky mud chimneys. They weren't like Mars Cane cabins planked up and warm. They were full of cracks and there weren't no lamps and no oil. And all the light come from the light wooden knots burning in the fireplace. Hmm. Well, one day, see now, my mammy come to the big house after me. Well, I didn't want to go. I won't stay with Miss Polly. I begun to cry. Mammy caught a hold of me. When I grabbed Miss Polly and I held her so tight, I tore her skirt bind and loose and her skirt come falling down round about her feet. And Miss Polly said, let her stay with me, uh, Mammy. But Mammy shook her head. You took her away from me and didn't pay no mind to my crime. So now, I was taking her back home. We's free now, Miss Polly. And we ain't gonna be slaves no more to nobody. And she dragged me away. I can see how Miss Polly look right now today. She ain't said nothing. But she looked hard at Mammy. And her face was white. Louis Gossett Jr. reads the words of Tom Hester, a freeborn who was bound out to a plantation owner. While looking after horses and wounded men for the Confederate Army, he was captured by the Yankees and began to work for the Union Army. He said that he saw Grant and Lee meet under an apple tree when Lee surrendered. General Lee tipped his hat first, and then General Grant tipped his. General Lee got off on his horse, and General Grant got off his. General Lee got on a new uniform with gold braid and lots of buttons. But General Grant got on an old blue coat that's so dirty it looked black. They stood there talking about half hour. And then they shake hands. And us what was watching know that Lee done give up. Then General Lee got on his horse. And General Grant got on his one. And General Lee tipped his hat. And General Grant tripped his in. And General Lee rode over to the rebel side. And General Grant rode over to our side. And the war was over. The next day, I went out there to cut a branch off that tree. But there wasn't no sign of it. Just a hole in the ground. The soldiers done cut that apple tree down and taken it for souvenirs. Yes, sir. Every last piece of it. Even the roots. On April 9, 1865, Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered to the Union Army. In December of that year, the 13th Amendment was ratified. 
It said that slavery shall not exist in the United States. But change is uncomfortable for most people, even when the change is for the better. Transitions will always present new challenges. Esther Rowe portrays Eva Strayhorn. Well, you see, all the colored people in the country, men, women, and children, except mother and her children, and the two little children that Hannah left in her care, had gone with the soldiers to the north where they would be set free. Mother wouldn't leave for she told the soldiers, My Henry is in the south and I'll never see him again if I leave the old home place for he won't know where to find me. The officer told her that he was coming back the next day after us and for her to be ready to go. Mother told Miss Tessie that she was going to town and take the oath of peace and they couldn't make her leave. Old Miss told her to go on. So that night, she hitched up the oxen and took her children and set out to Dover, Arkansas, 12 miles away, to see the Bureau man and take the oath. The oath of peace was that you would obey the law and wouldn't harbor no rebel soldiers nor no bushwhackers or do nothing that was wrong or would hinder the cause of the North. When we got back home, we didn't have no home. The very night we left, the bushwhackers or toe burners, as they was called, come to our house and told Miss Tessie that they wanted her money. She told them she didn't have any, but they didn't believe her and told her that they would burn her if she didn't give her money. She kept telling them that she didn't have any money and they took everything they wanted and then jerked the curtains off the windows and piled them up in the middle of the room and the furniture on top of them and set them afire and burned everything except the niggers' quarters. It was a pity to burn that big, pretty two-story house, but they'd done it. Mother and us children went to live on the side of the mountain in a little cabin by ourselves, and Miss Tessie went to live with Miss Liza, her daughter. Mother had to keep her oath, and she was afraid if she went with Miss Tessie that Master Robert might come home and they would say she had broke her oath and make her leave. One night, Mother was spinning and I was carding and everything was just as quiet as we heard somebody tap on the door. We said, real quiet, and then we heard it again. You dare not speak above a whisper. So Mother went to the door and said, real low, who's there? It's your 
old master, Bill Newton. Mother forgot and said, Lord, is that really you, Master Bill? And how did you know where I was? She opened the door and sure enough, it was Master Bill. He had come back to see how we was all getting along and found his house burnt. Somebody told him his wife was at Miss Liza's, so he went there and she told him where we was. He told Mother that he wanted to go to his brother Nazar's and wait for him there. And he would take us to where Father was. She hitched up the oxen and we went down to Uncle Nazar's and one night old Massa and Miss Tessie slipped in there and got us and took us to Texas. We found Father and we was all happy again. You told me about during the big breakup, the soldiers came by and uh, riding horseback, and you all were sitting on the fence, you children. Can you remember that? Oops, I can't. I've sat on the fence at the time, me and Cousin Lou and Cousin Sally and all of us. Our yard had white picket fence around the road, went right along by our house like the road goes along by my house. The voice of Harriet Smith. We said, oh, I stood on that picket fence all day long seeing them soldiers going back to San Antonio, different places. Colored soldiers. Colored soldiers. Colored soldiers in Joe. Well, what about this girl you told me about that one? Well, Matt Porter was the one that, that long Miss Porter, one of our white folks in there. Well, I thought she went off with the soldiers. She did. She went off with the soldiers. Soldiers come along. We all sitting on the fence, and I stand at the fence, sitting, and a colored soldier come along and asked her did she want to go with him. And she said yes. She mounted one of them horses. Up you know, behind him, huh? No, the horse to her side. Is that we right? We could ride horses. We'd jump on them horses. Spider sometime riding, sometime we learned how to do I could stand flat footed on the ground and jump on the horse side with you. Is that right? Right, yes. Well, you were riding. Yes, all of us, all of we all was raised to ride horses. Paul mm. had horses of his own, chickens of his own. Well, then what happened to Mac Porter after she and that soldier? Ah, she went on with them. I never did see her in his telephone no more. Mm. She was going towards Santa. Going towards Santa? Yes, she was going on with them. Well, why didn't she? Didn't even go tell her mama she was going or anything. She huh? didn't have any mother. Oh, I see. And it's already, she'd already been free, had she? Yes, yes. That was the time the soldiers was going back, back. you know, after the free. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she'd always come over to our house and stay with us. Alice Gaston, born 1853, was on a plantation in Alabama when she was recorded. I can remember when the Yankees come through. And uh, they carried my father away and carried away my two sisters and one brother. 
And uh, they left me, and I can remember when my mistress used to run in the garden. Pondy Yankees and tell us if they come, don't tell them where they're at. So don't tell nobody where they're at when they come. And they all come along and told me, don't get scared now and tell them where they, where they is. I told them no. He told them no. And uh, when they come and ask for them, I told them I didn't know where they were. And they was in the woods. And they was at the house. And my father, when my father left, he cared, big, he better be with the Yankees and cared. Two, had two, two girls and one son, the oldest one, had them with him, and they beat the Yankees. And I can remember that. Remembering slavery, African Americans talk about their personal experiences of slavery and emancipation. Only a few people alive today have heard the actual voices of men and women who experienced the days of slavery in the United States firsthand. These original recordings were made by interviewers from the Federal Writers Project in the 1930s and were then placed in the Library of Congress, never heard again by the wider public. These tapes include a dozen of the only known original recordings of former slaves. Along with them, you have heard readings from original transcripts by James Earl Jones, Jetta Jones, Melba Moore, Clifton Davis, Esther Roll, Louis Gossett Jr., and Debbie Allen. Our narrator has been Tania Stewart. Among those interviewers who had set out in the 1930s to talk to former slaves were such literary luminaries as Zora Neale Hurston and John Lomax. Remembering Slavery, originally presented by Susan Stone, is a two-part series, and we will be presenting part two on Cover to Cover Open Book next week. Any questions or comments, you can call 510-848-6767, extension 212. Thanks for listening. Our winter fund drive was a great success and raised $974,000. We'd like to extend a special appreciation to you, our generous community of listeners, all our phone room volunteers, and dedicated KPFA programmers and staff. All the special gifts we featured are now available at kpfa.org. Thank you again. Join Full Circle. Friday at 7 p.m. when we'll examine racism and discrimination. We will explore racism in the media and how it affects all aspects of our community. look at the impact of racism in New Orleans since the hard hit of Katrina. We will view the impact of discrimination upon women in Palestinian prisons. Listen in with us Friday 7 p.m. on Full Circle. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Free Speech Radio News.
This is Free Speech Radio News for Friday, February 17, 2006. From KPFK in Los Angeles, I'm Aura Ogado. On Capitol Hill, the Senate and House differ on their approaches into presidential oversight. Australian immigration officials are grilled for placing West Papuan asylum seekers on a detention center off the mainland. And we'll hear from Nicaragua, where doctors have been on strike for over three months. We'll bring you these stories and more after the headlines. I'm Shannon Young with the Free Speech Radio News headlines. Hundreds are feared dead after a massive mudslide buried an entire village in the Philippines today. The partial collapse of a nearby mountain comes after nearly two weeks of heavy rain. Over 2,000 people were thought to be present in the village at the time of the mudslide. Less than 60 have been rescued. Denmark has closed its embassy in Pakistan as violent protests against cartoon depictions of the Islamic prophet Muhammad entered into their fifth day today. Maswar Hussein reports from Islamabad. Pakistani police arrested around 150 Islamists all over the country in what was claimed to be a preemptive crackdown on potential troublemakers to stop Friday's demonstrations from turning into a repeat of this week's bloody anti-Western riots in which five people have died. In Peshawar, a religious leader offered a $1 million reward for the death of the cartoonists. Weeks of low-key protests in Pakistan turned into violent displays of anger at the West and discontent with the government of President General Pervez Musharraf. Protests are also expected on March 3, the day U.S. President Bush visits Pakistan. For Free Speech Radio News, Masroor Hussain, Islamabad. A federal judge in California has said he'll allow the Tuesday execution of condemned murderer Michael Morales after hearing a challenge to California's lethal injection process. For the first time, the state will have a doctor present in the execution chamber. Christopher Martinez reports. Lawyers for Michael Morales are objecting to a new plan to put a doctor in the San Quentin execution chamber to monitor the lethal injection process. The lawyers had challenged California's lethal injection process, saying records of past executions showed problems that could cause extreme pain amounting to cruel and unusual punishment. A federal district court judge yesterday ruled the presence of the anesthesiologist will ensure that Morales is unconscious before he receives otherwise painful injections of drugs to paralyze him and induce a fatal heart attack. Dr. Jonathan Groner is a professor of surgery at Ohio State University College of Medicine and an opponent of doctor involvement in executions. In this situation, you know, my feeling is the presence of the anesthesiologist sort of lends a medical veneer or you know, tacit approval of the medical community to the execution, when, of course, you know, nothing can be further from the truth. In fact, you know, both nationally and internationally recognized uh, ethical standards for physicians state that they should not be involved in executions. The California Medical Association is objecting to the state's new execution plan, saying capital punishment is not a medical task and threatens the public's trust of physicians. Reporting for Free Speech Radio News, I'm Christopher Martinez. Residents of Prestes Maya, a massive 23-story building in downtown Sao Paulo, are facing a battle over its ownership. People who were formerly homeless have occupied the building for more than three years. But now the courts have given its 1,600 residents a deadline by which to leave. Natalia Viana has the story. Prestes Maya, the biggest building occupied in Brazil by the homeless movement, won an important battle this week. Jorge Hamushi, the man who claimed legal ownership of the building, 
considered another 60 days before the 1,600 residents are evicted. The previous deadline was February 15th. Now, the MESTC, or Homeless Movement of São Paulo Center, is negotiating a solution with several deputies. They want the building to be purchased by the government so families may permanently live there. Hamushi owes about $2 million to the city hall in unpaid property taxes. On Saturday, homeless advocates will meet a secretary of the National Ministry of the City to ask the federal government to provide funds to the city to purchase the building. Natalia Viana for FSRN in Sao Paulo, Brazil. After nine days of a united strike comprising four unions and five student organizations, academic activities at South Africa's University of KwaZulu-Natal resume today. Naim Gina has the story. Following a tentative agreement reached yesterday, the strike was suspended. The industrial action was the biggest faced by the university. All levels of staff at the four campuses in two cities agreed on demands for salary and benefits and on the kinds of actions to be undertaken. Students joined in protest against new fee structures which amounted, they said, to prepaid education. Management agreed to union salary and benefits demands after originally refusing to budge. They also agreed to cut the prepayment of student fees. A committee of union and management representatives will also investigate complaints about authoritarian governance at the university. But staff response to the settlement was mixed. Some felt management hastily agreed to settle because of worker plans to march on the provincial parliament today, a move that would have embarrassed the government and the university. Others were thrilled, celebrating a new kind of victory at South African tertiary institutions, where struggles around fees and working conditions have intensified in the past few years. In Johannesburg, I'm Naeem Gina. And I'm Shannon Young for Free Speech Radio News. The Senate Intelligence Committee says they will not conduct an investigation into the president's domestic spying program, but the correlating House Committee says that it will. As the debate on Capitol Hill focuses on how or even if Congress should conduct presidential oversight, another important question lingers. Has the president broken the law? Leanne Caldwell reports from Capitol Hill. Following a closed meeting, the Senate Intelligence Committee said it would hold off on an investigation into the president's domestic wiretapping program. We have some time now to reach some accommodation that I think uh, would be a much better situation than having a confrontation, uh, i.e. a full-scale investigation at this time. Senator Pat Roberts from Kansas chairs the Intelligence Committee. He made the announcement after a committee vote. The vote to not investigate the program was agreed to along party lines. Ranking member of the committee, Jay Rockefeller from West Virginia. The White House has applied heavy pressure in recent days, in recent weeks, to prevent the committee from doing its job. Meanwhile, in the House of Representatives, the Select Intelligence Committee said they will conduct an investigation, but its depth and scope are under debate. Some members of Congress are concerned with the amount of power the president has placed upon himself to circumvent law in the name of national security. Congress is trying to figure a way to conduct congressional oversight of a program that could be illegal. Congressional critics of the program are dissatisfied with the little information they know. Two senators, both Republicans, are considering legislation. Senator Mike DeWine from Ohio suggests that congressional subcommittees be set up to receive updates on the program. Senator Arlen Specter from Pennsylvania also has an idea for legislation. I'm prepared to go in any direction which will subject the administration's program 
to a specific analysis on constitutionality with all the details on the table for the people to review who are in charge of making uh, of having that oversight or that determination. He said those people should be the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Courts, the body that is authorized to adjudicate on domestic spying. Republican Congressional Representative Heather Wilson from New Mexico is saying she could offer legislation as well. All legislation is aiming to rein in the powers the president claims to have. The president, the administration, has offered a couple of uh, rationales for what he's done. And one is that he has inherent power as president to uh, spy on Americans. No one agrees with that except maybe a handful of people who are close uh, and supportive of the president. Michael Greco is president of the American Bar Association. Another rationale is that the when Congress uh, authorized him to use all uh, military force to deal with the uh, al-Qaeda problem, that that resolution overrode FISA. That doesn't uh, hold water either. The American Bar Association backed a policy report compiled by legal scholars and former top officials in the intelligence agency. It calls on the president to consult with Congress to make sure the program is constitutional. Do you think that the president violated any laws for the Constitution? The, the burden is on the president to persuade people, including Congress, of his rationale. We can say with some confidence that the president lacked the authority under FISA to permit this program to go forward. Mark Rodenberg is president of the Electronic Privacy Information Center. He puts a practical reality on the domestic spying program, despite whether or not the president broke the law. Many Americans, almost certainly with no links to al-Qaeda or terrorism, had their private communications wrongfully intercepted and collected by the National Security Agency operating within the United States. The debate on legality will continue within the executive and legislative branches. If it can't be resolved there, it could move to the judicial. The courts have already gotten involved. A federal judge ruled last night that the administration must turn over pertinent legal documents on the program within 20 days. For Free Speech Radio News, I'm Leanne Caldwell. And in other news from Capitol Hill, Democratic Senator Russ Feingold of Wisconsin has withdrawn his block of the Patriot Act reauthorization bill. The Senate is now debating the bill and will vote on its final passage at the end of the month. President Bush's 2007 budget includes a provision to sell a number of parcels of Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management acreage around the country. The Forest Service has earmarked tracks in 32 states, ranging from just a few acres to a 33,000-acre parcel in Oregon's Klamath National Forest. For those concerned about the environment, the plan is cause for alarm, and many say it's the latest in a series of attempts to privatize public lands. FSRN's Lee Rabartas reports from Idaho. The Bush administration wants to phase out money given to rural counties and school districts under the Craig Wyden Secure Rural Schools and Community Self-Determination Act of 2000. That money, nearly $2 billion per year, comes from Forest Service timber sales within each county's borders. The administration wants to replace at least half of that money with revenue coming from public land sales. 
In announcing the sell-off, Agriculture Undersecretary Mark Ray portrayed the parcels as surplus, calling them isolated and difficult to manage. But a quick survey of environmentalists who have seen lists of specific tracts shows many are not isolated at all. Barry Rosenberg of the Kootenai Environmental Alliance in northern Idaho. Mockins Bay Campground, which is along Hayden Lake, and uh, near that area also is the English Point Trail Network. Both of these parcels are heavily used by the public. Matthew Kaler with the Native Forest Network in Montana. One chunk of land is about 300 acres in an area called French Basin. Uh, it's critical winter range for the largest herd of elk in western Montana and the largest herd of bighorn sheep in western Montana. And Velma Smith of the National Environmental Trust adds this. 730 acres of the Columbia River Gorge National Scenic Area in Oregon and Washington. The land in the proposal totals 308,000 acres, about 1.5% of the national forest land base. Ray says the list might be winnowed down to 200,000 acres. California has the most land on the list, with 85,000 acres scattered around the state, and Idaho is second. County officials are skeptical of the plan. Idaho County sprawls from the Oregon to Montana state lines and includes vast tracts of Forest Service land. Idaho County Commissioner Randy Doman says his county receives between 25 and $30 million a year of Craig Wyden money. Timber's renewable, and I'd rather see him make it easier to get timber and not sell the land, and it's a renewable, and if you make a mistake, you can, nature heals, but once you sell it, you can't heal it. Other conservative Western politicians also say they have reservations about the plan. Senator Larry Craig of Idaho, whose namesake law would be replaced by the land sales, and who heads the congressional subcommittee that will deal with the issue, says he has preliminary concerns. Quote, public lands are an asset that need to be managed and conserved. Jonathan Oppenheimer of the Idaho Conservation League thinks the proposal is probably dead on arrival when it gets to Capitol Hill. I don't think that there is a whole lot of life in this proposal. I think that it's uh, just something that the president threw in there to try to show that he was trying to be cost conscious and, and uh, trying not to run up our deficit even higher. However, this isn't the first attempt at a wholesale sell-off of public lands. In a plan that dwarfs the latest proposal, Congressman Richard Pombo of California in November introduced a bill to sell more than 350 million acres of public lands in an effort to pay for Katrina relief. Gary McFarlane of the Idaho-based Friends of the Clearwater says the increasingly frequent attempts to sell off public lands means the privatization agenda of the Bush administration is alive and well. Eventually something's going to happen and we're going to be able to slip through. There, these are trial balloons. When they talk about it enough time, and especially if the budget deficit grows larger, especially if people's needs uh, grow larger because of the failed economic uh, policies of the, of the neocons, then people may look at this as a possibility. If the plan is not killed by February 28th, the list of parcels will be published in the Federal Register and a 30-day comment period will start. For Free Speech Radio News, I'm Lee Robardis in Moscow, Idaho. Australian immigration officials were grilled during parliamentary hearings this week over the fate of 43 West Papuan asylum seekers currently being held at the detention center on Christmas Island off the west coast of mainland Australia. It is still unknown when the asylum applications of the group who arrived on the Australian mainland in January will be processed.
Back in their home province, the Indonesian military continues to suppress residents seeking independence from Indonesia. And while international human rights groups continue to raise concerns about abuses being perpetuated by the military, Indonesia maintains that its government will guarantee the safety of the asylum seekers if they're returned to West Papua. Erica Vowles reports from Sydney. People living in the province of West Papua face persecution every day, whether they're independence activists or ordinary civilians. These are the findings of four separate reports. Two reports by Sydney University and Yale University label the activities of the Indonesian military as genocide. Claims backed up in a third report by Juan Mendez, a UN expert on genocide. A fourth report by the U.S. State Department highlights human rights abuses committed by the Indonesian military. Despite this, Dino Kuznadi, the spokesperson for the Indonesian ambassador to Australia, says no asylum seeker will be harmed if returned home. Well, my president has given that um, assurances. The assurances is, look, these people are not sought by the authorities. That's one. Two is that pending if perhaps that they don't have any criminal records. We don't even know the, um, the, these names yet for sure. At this moment, we don't have any records stating that they're being sought by the authorities. So based on that, they do not have uh, any claims to need protection by any governments. Titus Gumbaya is from West Papua. After being active in the independence movement for years, he came to Australia because he was afraid the Indonesian military would one day target him. He was granted asylum in Australia two years ago after spending 10 months in Villawood Detention Centre. He simply does not believe statements by the Indonesian government that the 43 asylum seekers will remain unharmed if they are returned to West Papua. I, I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't believe this. If, if uh, Australian government, they, they send, send back these uh, 43 asylum seekers, they, they will be targeted and they will be persecuted. Not uh, not uh, they send it back and straight away maybe one year or uh, one month not like that but maybe you know like it take a couple of years. Federal Green Senator Kerry Nettle recently travelled to the Christmas Island Detention Centre to visit the 43 West Papuans currently being held there. Here she conveys the response the detainees gave to the Indonesian government's promises that all would be forgiven if they were returned home. Well, when they were told about these comments by um, Indonesian officials, they laughed because they know firsthand from their own experience what it is to suffer persecution at the hands of the Indonesian military. One of the 43 West Papuans, Herman Wangai, has been imprisoned twice by the Indonesian military simply for engaging in peaceful protest. He's concerned that if he was returned to um, Indonesia and to Indonesian authorities, this time he may be imprisoned again or even he may disappear. The Indonesian embassy spokesperson, Mr Kuznadi, also dismissed out of hand the claims of genocide and human rights abuses put forward in the reports authored by the UN, the US State Department, Yale University and Sydney University, maintaining these accounts were politically motivated. On the issues of West Papua again, by uh, independence. When you say four independent reports, but when when I say four independence reports that have an agenda, their own agenda on Indonesia, I question on their motives. Um, what I do want to say is that there is a very good intention with this current government to right and the wrong, and also to fulfill international standards of human rights. We are trying very hard.
Despite these assurances, Green Senator Kerry Nettle maintains that more abuses are occurring right now in West Papua and she says they're being carried out against the very families of the 43 West Papuans that are currently seeking refuge in Australia. Some of these people have contacted their families since they arrived and a special security task force of intelligence officers has been dispatched from Jakarta and has interviewed many of their uh, family. They, the words they use to me are that their families are being terrorised by the Indonesian intelligence services about them with uh, and the list of names of the people who were on the boat. So that's just further added to the persecution that they face. This is Erica Vols in Sydney reporting for Free Speech Radio News. Doctors in Nicaragua have been on strike for over three months, demanding an increase in wages, which President Enrique Bolaños' administration maintains the country cannot afford. Striking doctors have held demonstrations in front of domestic ministries and at the doors of the International Monetary Fund. Nan McCurdy has more from Managua. About 5,000 health workers marched this morning for a decent wage. The average health worker earns about $100 a month, and public sector doctors earn between $200 and $400 a month. The physicians in Nicaragua have been striking for three months, angered by the government's intransigence and withholding of 600 doctors' salaries until they return to their posts. Wednesday, 50 doctors from the group Pro Salary tore through the public women's hospital like a tornado, preventing attention to patients by strike-breaking doctors. They broke down the door and tore up the office of the director who is not participating in the strike. Until now, the doctors have protested by sitting in at government ministries and demonstrating in front of the International Monetary Fund. Health workers and teachers have not had a pay increase in years. And while only 20% of Nicaragua's budget goes for health care and education, 21% is destined for high percentage interest payments on the internal debt, money that has enriched a few wealthy bankers here. National Assembly Deputy Agustin Harkin. Hay dinero. There is money, but we cannot advance because this is the position of the monetary fund, together with the government and the other political forces with the exception of the Sandinista Front and the Convergence. Instead of orienting the debt relief to reduce poverty, they've reoriented the relief to pay the internal debt, part of which is not even legal. Over the last three years, Nicaragua has received hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt relief that was to have been used for social programs. But the IMF gave the green light to use this money to pay the interest on the growing internal debt resulting from a banking crisis and from high interest bonds emitted under former President Aleman's administration, much of which he stole for himself and his party. Carlos Pacheco is an analyst with the Center for International Studies. The International Monetary Fund is the principal destabilizing element in the policies of our country. When the health and education sectors demand a salary increase, the first words out of our government are, there's no budget, and the International Monetary Fund and World Bank are opposed to this. Jaime Cortez is a specialist in internal medicine. 
While the government ministers earn enormous quantities, what we earn is very little. The government we have does not have policies in favor of social sectors. We see that the government pays unjust interest to the private banks, but doesn't want to pay the workers. We know that our struggle is just because the population has been on her side, even though they are suffering. For Free Speech Radio News from Managua, I'm Nan McCurdy. The Nepali Supreme Court has scrapped the Royal Commission for Corruption Control, the controversial government body set up in the wake of last year's royal takeover. The bombshell decision released the country's imprisoned former prime minister, although at least four journalists are still being held without charge. In the years since the royal coup took place, civil liberties have suffered dramatically in Nepal, press freedoms in particular. FSRN's Carrie Byron reports that the government's new policies have been especially disastrous for the country's pioneering independent radio movement, while new government legislation is attempting to make the new regulations permanent. After Nepal ushered in democratic reforms in 1990, the following decade saw a lively explosion in new media initiatives. Suddenly, rabble-rousing presses were set up, as were television initiatives and the first independent public service radio station in all of South Asia. When Radio Sagarmata began broadcasting in 1997, Gamaraj Luintel was the first one to introduce the new station on the air. He says the community reaction was stunning. Because national radio only honored the voice of ministers, secretaries, but we broadcasted many problems of shoemakers, of uh, sweepers, those kinds of uh, issues. Based on this low-key approach, Radio Sagarmata's explosive success soon had its founders, like Luintel, touring the country teaching workshops on how to set up independent broadcasts. Through 2003, the last licensing period, 56 radio stations had been set up throughout the country, reaching about 65% of the population. As one of the most mountainous and illiterate countries on earth, Radio Sagarmata founder Raghu Mainali says that the introduction of localized radio broadcasts into Nepal was a perfect fit for its rural communities. They find a kind of recognition, cultural recognition, language recognition and caste recognition. It creates a kind of social harmony in between different caste and gender and other ethnic groups. It creates a local identity. People feel their ownership. That's why it's become very popular. Three months after the royal takeover last February, Luintel and Mainali participated in the creation of the Save Independent Radio Movement, which won an award from a Reporters Without Borders this past December. With RSF having ranked Nepal at 160th out of 167 countries for 2005 press freedoms, the two explain why SIRM became necessary. First, uh, army people came to the station. They threatened us not broadcast anything except music. Yeah. We've gone, pointing you. You are the presenter. And they were pointing you the gun from the control room to a studio. And in our legislation, and they clearly issued that we have a right to broadcast news and everything. But they don't want to follow any legal procedure. The government's crackdown on news has been a critical subject to the entirety of Nepali journalists, says the executive director of the Federation of Nepalese Journalists, R.B. Kachi. FNJ recently organized a conference on the one-year anniversary of the king's takeover to discuss the previous year. We have called all the victimized journalists from across the country, 50-plus journalists, who were harassed, threatened, arrested, in the immediate aftermath of February 1st, 2005. According to a report released at the conference by the International Federation of Journalists, this number includes at least 425 Nepali journalists. The same report indicates that last year, over half of the world's recorded cases of censorship took place in Nepal. What sort of press freedom can you expect in a country where 
Army officers sit in the chairs of the editors. The government's fear, says Raghuman Ali, comes simply from worries over its continued inability to deal with the country's most pressing problems in places like the mountain district of Mugu. Mugu's average life expectancy is under 34 years. And Kathmandu districts, more than 75 years. Our question is, who is the culprit to kill Mugu's people 40 years earlier 